0: The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers. And do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.
1: All rise. Welcome to the Cyberlaw and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center,
2: Bennett Kelly. Good morning and welcome to the program. I'm Bennett Kelly coming to you from the Internet Law Center in beautiful Santa Monica, California. This is a Cyber Cyberlaw and Business Report for Wednesday, July 7th, and you may be seated, my friends. On this week's show, we're going to start off with the Don Draper of AdLaw. Um, we have Jeff Greenbaum, who is one of the top advertising um, lawyers in, in the country, working with Frankfurt, Kernick, Klein, and Seltz, And he's going to talk about the FTC's um, .com guidelines and their, um, the possibility of them being updated. Um, in addition, we're gonna talk about this week's developments, particularly All Is Not Quiet on the Western Front and the Amazon Wars, and we're gonna talk about what's happened in California as well as some other recent legal developments in the second half. But um please join us in welcoming Jeff Greenbaum. Jeff, are you with us?
3: Yes, yeah, thanks, Bennett. It's
2: great to have you. Um, I actually be here. you know I've done panels with Jeff on a number of occasions, and he's actually a very gifted presenter. So if you see him on, on the uh, agenda for a program, I definitely would you know, try to go see, see him present. Um, Jeff has done a lot of presentations on um, av- deceptive advertising, um, including traveling, working with the FTC um, um, presentations on um, what's called the um, green light, red light program. So, Jeff, um, how are you today? Good, good. Thanks, Bennett. So um, tell us, what, it, what are the FTC.com um, disclosure guidelines? Well, you know, I think the thing
3: to understand about the FTC is, you know, people think of the FTC as the sort of the police department of the federal government, the ones that are out there protecting consumers from, you know, false and deceptive conduct and from fraud. Um, But the FTC really does its job in a lot of different ways. Yes, there is. An enforcement piece of this thing, and you know, the, the Section Five of the FTC Act prohibits unfair or deceptive acts or practices. And the FTC is out there looking at national advertising, looking at smaller advertisers, looking at B2B advertisers, looking at online advertisers, and trying to figure out you know where it can do the best good, where it can stop you know harm that needs to be addressed. But you know, a, another part of the the FTC's mission is there's a rulemaking part of it, and then there's a guidance aspect of it as well. And you know, one of the things that the FTC has always been really committed to is this idea that they can't do it all simply through enforcement; that there just aren't enough people out there to go and stop every possible person who is, um, you know, who is committing some sort of fraud or, or you know, doing something that perhaps crosses the line. And so, the FTC has really made a big commitment to, you know, business education, and they do this through issuing all kinds of guidance documents. And some of them are much more formal; some of them actually are. Regulations and some of them really are much more about, uh, you know, much more about, m- much more about guidance. And what they are about is uh, educating con- businesses about the kinds of things that are going on and helping them to sort of think through problems as sort of they are developing. So the FTC in 2000 issued something called its dot-com disclosures, information about online advertising. And these are not regulations; they don't have the force of law. They are not a formal Rule issued by the FTC. There's simply the FTC staff's view about how to address uh, disclosures in an online setting, and you have to also think about when these were issued. These were issued in 2000, and when you think about 2000, I mean, 2000 is very, very early internet. Certainly, the things, the concerns that the FTC had then are very, very different than they were today. So, the FTC was basically saying, "Hey, you know, we've seen the this whole new medium." Uh, emerge and advertisers are asking lots of questions about how do you advertise online you know what rules and what laws apply to online advertising and what are some of the ways in which we can properly disclose terms and conditions that need to be disclosed and so that's really what the dot com disclosures are about they're about the FTC saying, hey we've seen this new thing happen. it's brand new everyone is using this thing called amazon.com and using this thing called google And we need to explain to consumers, you know, explain to businesses, you know, how are you going to advertise properly online? And, uh, you know, the dot-com disclosures document, you know, if you distill it down to two things, it really says... Two things. The first thing that it says is that all the rules and all the laws that apply to offline advertising apply to online advertising. So, you know, there was some question that people had about, well, hey, you know, all of these rules were written, you know, before there was any kind of meaningful Internet, you know, so did did anyone really intend for these to apply to online advertising? Right, and at that
2: time, there was this belief that the Internet was its own kind of universe, And somehow laws of gravity or, or even laws of finance didn't seem to apply in the early days of the Internet, it seems. But I'm sorry. Go ahead.
3: Well, no, no, I I think you're right, and I think this is an important point when you think back to what was going on at the time, which is, you know, we all used to talk about the Internet as the Wild West, and there was this sort of idea that, well, the Internet is just something different, that, you know, the normal copyright rules don't apply, the normal false advertising rules apply, the normal rules of conduct don't apply, and I think the FTC was seeing advertisers react that way, saying, wait a second, this is just a different animal. We don't know what it is, but whatever it is, the rules don't apply. So the FTC says, hold on. It does apply, you know, all of the things that you have to think about when you're creating any other kinds of advertising materials you have to think about when you're uh, creating online advertising. And so I think that that was a, a major statement from them, and it was really intended to say to people, hey, you've got to treat an online communication with the consumer like you would any other offline communication. I think, and that's and, number one.
2: And part of it was also dealing with the, just the way the visual aspect of viewing something online versus offline. You know, the bottom of a page on a website is different than the bottom of a page on a printed ad because you may not, it, it may be below the fold and you may not scroll down and see it as opposed to a page that's in front of you.
3: No, I, I think it's it's a great point and you know the really that, that that's the second part of the FTC's guidance was okay now that we've told you that the same rules apply now we want to tell you a little bit about how you might apply them in this context and you know when we talk about disclosures you know wh- what's the purpose of a disclosure and maybe we should you know take a minute and talk about that
2: right what are we disclosing
3: Yeah So, you know, when you think of what Section 5 prohibits, it prohibits a false claim. And what what an advertiser is required to do when making an advertising claim is ensure that the claim is truthful and that they have proof that those claims are, in fact, true. So the reason you might use a disclosure when making an advertising claim is to qualify the claim so that... Consumers understand the specific claim that you're making, the claim that you have proof for. Because advertisers are responsible, not only for the express claims that they make, but for all the implied claims that they make as well, you know, advertisers sometimes use and often use disclosures to narrow the meaning of a claim so that although something could be understood to mean lots of different things, by using a disclosure, it limits the claim to mean something significant uh, you know, in a related way when you're making an offer consumers and you're telling consumers, and really this is just a special type of claim, you know, where there are limitations on the offer, where there are certain conditions that you have to, to satisfy in order to qualify for the offer, those again are you know, aspects of the claim that need to be communicated to consumers so they understand you know, they understand what, you know, what, the, what the actual offer is. And so the purpose of a disclosure is to prevent consumers from being misled. And, you know, one of the things that's often confusing to advertisers is they think that consumers have an obligation to seek out disclosures, to sort of approach advertising with a fine-tooth comb, to sort of be responsible in the way that they interact with advertising. However, that's not really the law. What the law is is that the advertiser has the obligation to ensure that consumers are not misled, um, Average disclosures are judged really by a performance standard. The FTC would ask the question: You know, do consumers see the disclosure? Do they understand it? And have they read it in the context of the claim so that they're in fact not misled? So, the standard that the FTC applies for disclosures is a clear and conspicuous standard. Is the disclosure clear and conspicuous so that if a consumer sees the claim, they're also going to see the disclaimer and they're not going to be misled?
2: So yeah, the, the standard FTC I often i go ahead, Beth. The standard I often apply to to simplify things in layman's terms is to say that you know, would would your grandmother understand the ad?
3: No, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that that's a nice way of putting it, which is, you know, you know, think of think of a particularly vulnerable consumer who the ad is directed to, and ask, you know, is he or she going to understand what you're saying? And so, what the FTC did was they took these traditional factors and they said, hey, you know, let's think about how these would. Apply be applied online. And the factors that the FTC applies, you know some of them are, you know, think about the placement of the disclosure. Where did you put it in the advertisement? Think about the proximity of the disclosure. Is it close to the claim that is being made? Think about how prominent it is. Is it somewhere where people are going to see it? Or is it somewhere at the bottom of the ad below the fold? Um, are there other elements of the advertising that are going to distract people's attention from the disclosure? You know, often, you know, people will complain about a television commercial, for example, that has a disclosure, but the disclosure is showing whether there's stuff happening in the background and fireworks are going off and people are singing and, you know, your your attention is distracted away from the important qualifying information that you need to know. So the FTC looks at those kinds of factors. And so the dot-com disclosure document was about taking those factors and saying, okay, let's think about how those would work online. And, you know, you gave a nice example, which was... Think about a web page. Well, a web page is not the. Uh, is in, think about a web page in the year 2000. Even in the year 2000, a web page was not the same thing as a print ad. You know, a print ad, you open up your newspaper, your magazine, and back then there were still newspapers and magazines, and you would look at the ad and the disclosures would be there and you would understand that when you look at that ad, you also there's some relevant qualifying information wherever those disclosures are located. On the other hand, if you were to open up a web page in your browser, you wouldn't necessarily know to scroll down to the bottom of the page to see the qualifying information that might be there. And so one of the things the FTC said was, okay, if you've got disclosures that are at the bottom of the page, how are you going to communicate to people that there's more information down there that they need to know about. And they said you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can direct people to the bottom. You could say, hey, read below for more important information that you need to know about this offer. Or you could design the web page in a way that you can't even see all of the information without scrolling. In other words, the design of the page leads you to keep going down the page. But the idea is to really take into account the technology and to think about, hey, don't just assume that if you put the disclosure somewhere, consumers will find it, because everything we know about the way con- that consumers interpret ads is is you know they often will not find it unless we give them some help by making it clear and conspicuous. And so the FTC said to, to advertisers, you know, on a website, you need to do the same thing. There, you need to tell consumers if you've got the disclosures that are sort of hidden somewhere or, or not immediately obvious. Well, figure out a way to direct them to it.
2: And now if, you to- we keep talking about the guidelines, and just if if you haven't haven't seen them or aren't familiar with them, they are available on the FTC's website and what they are is they include uh, a a short relatively short um written statement and explanation by the FTC, followed by a, a number you know 30 pages of about of examples you know of actual mock ads and um that you know show what what is acceptable and what isn't so if you never reviewed them and you work and you do business online you definitely should review them and, um, and so what's coming up now is the FTC has decided to revisit these, these guidelines. Um, what, what do you think of that?
3: Well, you know, I think one of the things that the FTC did in 2000 that was very forward-thinking was they said, there's, a, there's technology here, and you can use technology effectively to help with disclosure. You know, when you've got a TV commercial or a print ad or an outdoor billboard, there's only so many ways you can disclose qualifying information. However, the FTC recognized that when you've got... Digital media. When you've got this online interactive media, there are a lot more ways that you can communicate this information. And so, what the FTC said was, "Look, we're not stuck with our old ways. We're not stuck with oh, you have to do it a certain way, which is you know just put the thing in bigger point type at the bottom of the website. And you know, you can use technology in whatever way is going to be effective to communicate this information clearly. So, so what's the FTC doing now? I mean, what, what the FTC is doing now is first, just by way again, by way of background, you know, the FTC periodically reviews all of its rules and guides and guidance that's out there to ensure that it's current and useful to to businesses. And so, you know, the FTC often operates on sort of a 10-year cycle. Um, So I think what you're seeing now is a little bit of a regular look back at, hey, what did we do a decade or so ago and what needs to be updated? And the FTC is doing that and constantly doing that with respect to all of its guidance. And I think the time has come the FTC felt to you know take another look at the dot com guidelines and it makes sense of course because I mean think about how much has changed I mean the FTC is very technically savvy they really understand what's going on and they recognize that the sort of the way that we consumers were using the internet and the way that businesses were advertising in 2000 you know bears very very little relationship to what's happening today I mean, think of, I mean, 2000 was, you know, four years before Facebook was founded. It was before YouTube. It was many, many years before Twitter and almost a decade before Foursquare came about. So, you know, all the ways in which brands are talking to consumers today Really, weren't even envisioned, even you, know, you couldn't even been conceived of in the .dot com disclosure guidelines. So, one of the things that the .dot com, you now, you know, what the FTC has done, just so procedurally, we understand where we are. The FTC is basically saying to the industry and to the public, "Hey, we want to revise these guides. You know, we're approaching this with an open mind, and so that they they are here asking in the way that they do typically when these kinds of reviews take place. Are hey, how are they going? Are they working? Are they not working? What's working? What's not working? What needs to be updated? What's not relevant anymore? You know, do you have any information that could be useful to us? And this is a really important point and something for people to think about who are considering uh, submitting comments to the FTC on the dot-com disclosure guidelines is the FTC is very focused on looking at research that really shows either that consumers are being misled or not misled. In other words, FTC wants a reason to make a change. So if they've got, disc- if they've got evidence out there that shows that something is working, then that's really helpful to them in giving uh, giving businesses guidance. I'll give you an example. Now let's say some of the guidance in the original .com disclosure guidelines was about the use of hyperlinks and whether a hyperlink is going to be an effective way to to disclose qualifying information. Um, you know, one of the things the FTC is going to be asking, because they have to be asking, is, is when you tell consumers, hey, click here for more information, or click here for important disclosures, are consumers doing it? Do they understand how important that information is? Now, if there was research submitted to them that said, hey, yeah, we are, we have really great click-through rates, we know that consumers are in fact reading this information, well, that would be really good evidence, the FTC, that that's working. On the other hand, if, you know, they generate their own evidence that shows that, in fact, you know, people never look at the terms and conditions or that the click-through rates are extraordinarily small. That's going to be real strong evidence to the FTC that maybe a hyperlink standard for disclosure is just not good enough. So the FTC is asking those questions. And, you know, they're going to ask questions about, you know, the way in which advertisers are advertising, the different types of uh, ways that consumers interact online. Um, And I think they're also going to be looking at the different ways that technologies change. For example, uh, one simple example that the FTC raises in its sort of request for comment is, you know, the the rise and prevalence of pop-up blockers. So that you know, you know, you've got your computer set or your browser set so that you know, when a website wants to you send a pop-up to your screen, you've blocked it from appearing. However, if the method in which you are disclosing qualifying information is through a pop-up, well. You know, suddenly the disclosure that you thought was going to pop up and be unavoidable and easily readable by consumers suddenly is not. So, you know, it's a question where you know, FTC wants to think through, well, are those working or are they not working?
2: All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back we'll be with Jeffrey, and we're going to talk a little further about where the FTC might go with these guidelines after after these messages.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Two, one, booster ignition. Ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy to use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with Ascender Carts. Learn more about what Ascender Cart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T dot com. AdMedia tailors your all-in-one campaign to give your account a real advantage. AdMedia.com delivers cost-effective ad solutions with real conversions. Learn everything AdMedia can do for you today. Sign up at AdMedia.com. AdMedia, strong ROI made simple. Example number
0: 50 of dialogue you will never read in our chat room. Hey there, stud. Want to help me optimize my landing page? Uh... Actually, I was here to post my domain for sale. Goodbye. But wait. Make deals and make money with people like you without the spam. Hey, stud. The WebmasterRadio.fm chat room, live in real time every day. Click on the chat tab from our homepage. SEO
1: 101 on WebmasterRadio.fm. Catch us Mondays at
0: 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization channel only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
1: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on
2: WebmasterRadio.fm. Welcome back. We are here with Jeff Greenbaum talking about the FTC.com disclosure guidelines. And if you're listening live, you can also participate via the chat room um, at WebmasterRadio.fm. But Jeff, um, where do you think the FTC might go with these new guidelines? Well, or, or will they even update them? One
3: of the them? things that the FTC is going to do is they're going to ask the hard questions about are these disclosures really working? And they're going to look at things like Twitter. You know, when a brand... Communicates or when someone's trying to market something in a very in very very small real estate, you know are there ways that you can effectively disclose qualifying information or other important give other important disclosures and I think they're going to ask questions about does you know a really short hyperlink work? do multiple tweets work? What what are other ways in which consumers are going to get this information? And I think that they're asking these questions and they're looking to see, you know, for industry to really come to them and say, "Hey, you know, what is it? What, what's working and what's not working?" And I think that they're going to they're going they see that as a real challenge given the limited real estate. Um, similarly, I think that you know web pages are different than they were. Uh, Ten years ago, you know, while ten years ago, you might have gone to a brand's website or to a particular online store and sort of taken it in as a whole. You know, now we're interacting with, you know, websites, think social media in a very, very different way. And, you know, when a brand is, you you know, promoting something on Facebook and there's a post and the post. You know, or and and there's a post on a site. The question is: is where do you put the disclosing information? Does the disclosure go back on the brand's website? Does it go where the consumer has posted something on their own wall? What happens when people start talking about that information? And I think that the FTC's at the end of the day, the law is not going to change because this is not legal guidance. It's not legally binding guidance. It's simply the FTC's trying to be helpful to industry about what's the right thing to do or what's an effective way to make disclosures. So I think what the FTC is going to hammer home is don't rely on methods that you know aren't going to be effective. You have to make sure that consumers really do understand what's going on. And one of the basic principles of disclosure law is that the disclosure needs to be something that people see and are exposed to basically when the claim is occurring where they are. So, you know, if you think of a traditional print advertisement, you can't tell people for the information you need, call this 800 number because... The disclosing, the, dis- the, the qualifying information needs to be where the claim is. And I think on the Internet, they're going to say the same thing. They're going to look and they're going to say, even in really unusual settings, even when you've got a limited number of characters, even when someone's checking in and, you know, you have very, very little ability to give them much information, if you're going to make claims that require disclosures, you're going to have to figure out a way to communicate to consumers that there's something really important that you need to know.
2: Clients often try to. I'm Clients often ask, you know, how little they can get away with disc- you know, disclosing um, in 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 the ad. And you know, I have to anticipate someone saying, "Well, if I make a claim on Twitter and I, I put LOL next to it, is that sufficient?" Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I think what the FTC is trying to do also is anticipate um, a, a, a migration to a new platform know, which would be a more a PDA, smartphone platform, where you, you have less real estate to work with, and and do well, you see that uh, that as being a big part of where, what they're thinking? I think it's a
3: great point. I mean, you know, even in the 2000 guidance, the FTC was pretty forward thinking and talked about screen size as one of the issues that need to be considered. And I I think that there is no question that this guidance is going to have to include some information about you know, consumers are looking at advertising today on smartphones. They're, you know, they're, you know, I mean, the iPhone didn't come out till seven years after the guidance was issued. So, you know, there's no question that advertisers do need some guidance about, you know, what are the ways we're going to effectively disclose things when you've got a very, very small screen or an iPad or something like that. So I do think that that's important. And I, I think there's also challenges about, you know, the ways in which, you know, where are we going to lead people to get those disclosures? Does a hyperlink mean the same thing to a consumer, you know, when they're, online as are they really le- le- are they really as likely to click through to something if they're viewing the internet or sort of uh, you know from their from their iPhone and so i think that those are hard questions they're going to ask also one of the challenges is going to be taking traditional media and making it available to people online on a smaller screen i mean think about a tv commercial that has a disclosure on it that is clear and conspicuous when you see it on a big um, television yes, in your
2: bedroom, on your flat, on your you flat, take flat screen, screen TV, screen, you and take that yeah. television
3: commercial, and you put it on YouTube, and then people watch the YouTube commercial on their iPhone. You know what's the likelihood that consumers are going to be able to see the disclosure, and how, do you, how are you going to address that? And so I think we have to be thinking about not only, okay, tr- thinking about traditional, not only thinking about advertisements that you're creating for a specific medium or specific device, but the fact that people are even looking at traditional advertising in non-traditional ways.
2: Now, so you're saying it's the official position of the U.S. government that size matters? <laughs>
3: Well, you know, there is no question that the FTC is always going to tell you, you know, a bigger disclosure is almost always going to be better. Though I will tell you, I mean, I think the FTC has very smartly said that, you know, there can be too much disclosure, too. You know, one of the concerns I always have when, you know, the sort of the advertisements get over-lawyered and out of fear – or lack of experience or knowledge, you know, there's just too much disclosure that's placed in advertising, you know, it makes the disclosures unreadable. And the point of a disclosure is to actually help consumers to make sure they're not being misled. And I think that once you put a giant block of text, it often will be less likely that consumers will be able to digest everything that's out there. So I always encourage you know advertisers to take a step back and say hey wait a second is this working have i really left consumers with a misimpression and is all of this stuff here really going to help me if it's not we try to figure out a way to disclose it differently
2: but even if you get it right i recall seeing a study um an ftc commission study but not a study by the ftc that looked at um health claims made in on diet products and um and the disclosures were made, I believe, in 14- or 16-point font. <laughs> right. This and is the, and is there was the a remarkably low did. retention of what was said.
3: Right. This is, the FT- this is the study the FTC did in connection with its revisions to the endorsement guides. And what the FTC found was that in print advertisements, disclosures that were in 18-point type, I think it was, in bold, in red, in the center of the ad, were not effective. That in other words, consumers at least from the FTC's point of view really aren't reading disclosures or at least there's a substantial enough number of consumers who are not reading even the most potentially prominent disclosures you could have that they're still being and they're still being misled so what's the message there the message there is the ftc in many ways does not believe that disclosures work and the ftc is really saying to advertisers that if you have a claim that is potentially misleading you need to fix the claim because it's extraordinarily unlikely that we're ever going to buy an argument that the disclosure was not effective um an an ftc staff member who once told me a story that that she had looked into years and years and years of FTC case history to see whether a disclosure was ever an effective defense uh, to an FTC action for false advertising. And she said that she thought that she had never found a situation where that was the case. And I think that that's an important lesson, which is that, you know, where there's a misleading claim, you know, that fine print is often just not going to help you.
2: But then I think in the programs you have done with the FTC, the green light, red light, you know, they often highlight the um, disclosures are made, but they're made in four point font or you know someplace you know completely separate from where the statements are made. And um, now Jeffrey, um, the FTC also has a, a number of other useful guides. Uh, I, for example, on pricing, and um, there's a host of other ones. Are you familiar with those? Yeah, of course. And um, so if if you, know, if you're working online, it's really I would really recommend that you go to the FTC website and check out you know some of their other guides. They have guides on pricing, you know, comparative pricing issues, and um, you know, so it's just useful to see which ones may apply to your business, and they, they're very helpful in a general sense.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would but, say I would, two things that I think would be helpful. Number one is you know, the FTC has just revamped its sort of business education. Portion of its website, and it's just a terrific resource for businesses of all kinds to really get their questions answered. And the FTC has really gone to great lengths to not just reproduce rules online, but to actually write in really layman's terms you know, what you need to do to order, in order to comply with those rules. I think the second thing that everyone should be looking at who's advertising online is the revisions to the FTC's endorsement guides. There's probably been nothing more significant from a guidance standpoint from the FTC in the last couple of years than that. It really talks about the importance of being transparent with consumers. I think that there's a lot of times where advertisers are trying to get information to consumers without really being fully forthright with them about who's talking to them. And the FTC has given some really strong guidance and some really helpful uh, guidance about how to communicate with consumers, not get in trouble there. And certainly we've already started to see some enforcement on that area, too.
2: And you, you mentioned earlier the FTC's uh, technological sophistication. And they've recently beefed up their staff and technology, and have actually brought in some um, well-known technologists as well to to advise them. And so, uh, do you find that they're they're much more savvy and quicker to get up to speed on internet issues than they were maybe five years ago?
3: Well, you know, I think I think absolutely and I, I think that these are really smart people who are really focused on keeping up with the technology. And you know, one of the reasons the FTC issues guidance documents rather than regulations is that they can issue guidance faster and that it's more flexible and it's easier to change. And I think that the FTC recognizes that technology is continually evolving and People's ideas and the ways in which people are in the market are continually evolving, and they have to be there, and they have to be able to evolve with it. So, I think the FTC is very focused on this. I and mean, they are exerting they're they're exerting huge res- they're spending uh, huge resources on you know on internet advertising and on internet fraud, and on really trying to address some serious internet concerns. And I think that they've been very good about when new technology that is pro- that is. Potentially concerning to consumers, ones that are you know potentially you know defrauding consumers or just being seriously misleading to consumers. The FTC has been pretty aggressive at going after those things quickly. I mean, there was a series of pop-up cases the FTC brought very quickly after that became a problem. There have been certainly on the affiliate marketing side, the FTC has been very aggressive ensuring the proper disclosures are made, and I think the FTC is going to continue to really pay attention to the latest technology. And you know I mean, FTC has brought iTunes cases, not against iTunes itself, but against false advertising in the context of iTunes reviews, so the FTC is very up to date on what's going on
2: now I mean are you submitting any comments to the FTC and, and what are you what would you recommend if-
3: well I, I think that you know certainly as a, as a as a law firm we're not submitting comments, but you know we are you know working with clients who may be submitting you know Uh, Clients and trade associations who are submitting clients themselves. You know, I think that companies that should submit comments should submit comments where they can give helpful examples to the FTC of things that are working. You know, what the FTC wants to do is be able to give people useful guidance. So, if you've got concerns that the FTC is going to take something away or you know, quote, take something away or the FTC is going to tell you, hey, you can't do what you've been doing. If you know that something you're doing is effective and you have research to back it up, that's going to be extremely persuasive to the FTC. I mean, you know, what the FTC does not find helpful in these review processes is where you write to them and say, ah, it's working fine. Leave it alone. Or, you know, what, we don't like any of this or, you know, everything's fine, that's not really helpful because it's just sort of a vague opinion. What the FTC is really looking for is either specific experiences that can help them think through an issue or really specific research that's going to inform them on on the decisions they're making. I also think that giving them specific examples and guidance uh, that they can then use and repurpose is a very helpful thing to do, too. So I think that for businesses, it's really about if you've identified some problems and come up with some good solutions, this is a way to see if you can get those solutions to be really a part of the process and part of the guidance the FTC is, is communicating.
2: Now, Jeffrey, if, if people want to find you, what's the best way to reach you?
3: Um, you can go to my website. It's uh, our Frankfurt Kerner website, it's, uh, www.fkks.com, and all my contact information is right there.
2: Great. Jeff, Jeffrey Greenbaum, the Don Draper of Ad Law, it was great to have you, and um, I hope you'll join us again.
3: All right. Thanks a lot, Ben. Take
2: care. When we come back, we'll be talking about developments in California in the Amazon wars after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the
1: Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. And now, spanning the globe to give you the most in-depth coverage of events that matter to you. WebmasterRadio.fm.
0: Our clients have earned over $1 billion. Now it's your turn. With over 20,000 products to promote across a huge variety of niches, ClickBank provides countless ways for any affiliate to make money. You can promote any product immediately. No contracts required. Looking for recurring commissions? Upsell products? ClickBank's got them. And best of all, you can make up to 75% commissions. Ready to become the next ClickBank success story? Sign up now for free at ClickBank.com. Looking for a white label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think. E Brands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. E Brands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. E Brands. Twitter management app analytics and mobile site generators. E Brands. Of an industry that makes tens of billions of dollars every year. People hang on to their every word of their business strategy, even the prepositions. These are the internet millionaires you have read about and whose secrets you would love to learn. They are the most inspiring and intriguing people in affiliate marketing. When I want to build relationships with the best and brightest minds in affiliate marketing amongst lush tropical surroundings, I come to Afcon 2011 Miami. Afcon 2011 Miami. October 13th through 15th at the Fairmont Turnberry Isle in Miami, Florida. Register and learn more at afconevents.com. A F F C O N events.com. Come my friends to Afcon 2011 Miami.
1: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
2: And we're back, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened last week in Sacramento um, with California adopting what is known as the Amazon tax. And Newton's law is that every action has an opposite reaction, and it was proved true here. Um, Within days of Governor Brown signing the budget that included the Amazon tax provision, um, Amazon sent notices to all of its affiliates in the state, which is over 10,000 affiliates, that contracts with all participating California residents are terminated effective today, Um, even though the law does not go into effect, I believe, until October 1st. So it's somewhat of a political statement. Uh, as well as an economic blow to the state um so but let's back up and talk a little bit about what exactly is the amazon tax it's it's also been referred to as the advertising tax or the affiliate tax um or just the 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 nexus law but here's what it is and how how it evolved um there were issues right in dealing with commerce and in, in between the states um that are implic that trigger implications of the Constitution. Um The Constitution has a provision called the Commerce Clause that states can't unduly burden interstate commerce, which affects the state's ability to impose regulations that will affect um, interstate commerce. And then there's also the 14th Amendment and due process requirements, and that has uh, been interpreted to um, restrict uh, a person ha- from having to appear in a state where he, it's, he dead, wouldn't know, reasonably expect to be there uh, be subject to their jurisdiction, and there really aren't sufficient contacts to warrant that. So all that comes into play in, in a Supreme Court decision um, called um, North Dakota versus Quill, and in that decision, what the Supreme Court decided that for purposes of clarity, they should develop a bright line test, and the bright line was quite simple: if you're doing business in a state, excuse me, if if you have a physical presence in a state. You know, being a warehouse, a store, an office, um, then you have um, then you have a presence in that state for purposes of um, taxation, and so they can ex- they can tax you or they can re- expect you to withhold taxes, you know, in on sales made in that state, um, and so that's what's the issue here in the Amazon. Um, case because Amazon has gone out of its way not to have a physical presence in most states. There's only a handful of states that they do. And so as a result, they're able to sell their product without having any obligation to collect sales tax, despite the fact that their sales in every state is quite pervasive. And so the state of New York um, three years ago, four years ago, came up with the idea of reinterpreting what exactly it means to have a physical presence in the state. And they said that if you're an online retailer and you are working with affiliates who are based in the state, you know, they have an in-state presence, and there's no doubt, and you're paying more than $10,000 per year to those affiliates in commissions for sales, then you are presumed to have a presence in the state for tax purposes unless you can somehow rebut it. And we're not going to really go into what um, what it takes to rebut. but So that was the first of what became known as the Amazon tax. And why was it called the Amazon tax? Because, frankly, it was mainly targeted at Amazon. The idea was here you have this huge behemoth retailer that is doing tons of business but not paying sales tax. And that has caused a lot of friction both in terms of Amazon's competitors, not just at the book level but at the retail level. In fact, one of the biggest advocates for the Amazon tax is this small little outfit known as Walmart, And so Walmart sees Amazon as an attempt to become the online version of Walmart and has, has now been become its, uh, its legislative opponent in pushing the Amazon tax, and not surprisingly, Arkansas amazon's home, excuse me, our, um, Walmart's home state is one of the states who have adopted the Amazon tax. So what are the details in who else is what are the details of the California law and who else has adopted it? Well, let's start with the second part. So far the law has been adopted in Arkansas, Connecticut, Illinois, North Carolina, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Um, And so we were now up to when you count California. Um, That's about a third of the population subject to the Amazon tax. Um, So what is the law? Basically, it requires retailers selling over $500,000 per year in the state who have over $10,000 in a year in sales generated by in-state affiliates to collect sales tax. So it's not all out-of-state retailers using affiliates. Um, It's really only a larger out of state retailers who, who do have affiliate programs and um, the bill also has provisions that extend the obligations to accept um, to out-of state retailers with in-state subsidiaries or distribution centers. And um, I think Overstock, for example, um, was was specifically targeted in one provision since they uh, they bought the naming rights to the Oakland Coliseum and I think um, that would be captured by um, one of the provisions in the, the law that was signed by Governor Brown. Um, And what we're seeing here in in California is that while California expects to get significant revenue from this new Amazon tax, their own projections um, show that um, for every $2 they collect in revenue, it will be offset by $1 in losses due to the impact on affiliates. So the question is, what do affiliates do next? Um, there have been legal challenges. There were legal challenges in New York, um, and New York, is, the, it was kind of a split decision. The, um, the New York Appellate Court said that the law wasn't constitutional on its face, which meant you know, just on a per se basis, looking at the law, um, it can never be constitutional. But the court remanded the case to the trial court to determine whether it was unconstitutional as it was being applied to Amazon. And so you know, there still is a possibility of something um, developing there. Now, there's also litigation pending in Illinois, which was the first state to adopt an Amazon tax this year. And you know the, the PMA, um, as you may have heard last week, is, is pursuing litigation there. And the likely, I would expect, there likely would be litigation in California, um, although I don't expect Amazon to be the lead on that. I think the the word on the street is that Amazon decided it was going to roll the dice once, um, and that was in New York, and so it's waiting for that process to play out, and it's not going to be litigating this in all 50 states. Um, Now, another aspect in terms of reaction is one of the affiliates' reaction You know, do they leave the state to uh, somehow keep their ties to Amazon and other um, retailers, or do they have other recourse in Colorado, which has a kind of a what's known as a Big Brother law, which doesn't require the retailers to collect the tax, but it puts some onerous provisions on them, requiring them to notify in-state affiliates of their uh, obligation. Excuse me, in-state customers of their obligations to pay the sales tax and also to provide a year-end report on the um, amount of purchases they made online. And so in Colorado, after Amazon terminated all their in-state affiliates there, there actually was a group that tried to organize a boycott at Amazon, but I don't believe it has caught traction. But here in California... Um, Amazon not only just terminated you know, over 10,000 of its affiliates, it also terminated over 10,000 of its customers. And so the question is, is whether they decide to use the marketplace as a remedy um, for the harm they've just suffered. And you know, particularly considering, um, you know, that that is an, a key part of Amazon's strategy. If that becomes neutralized and somehow is less effective um, because of the impact of you know the, the affiliates they terminate, in their their friends and families and extended community deciding not to purchase Amazon. Um, that would be a major hit for the company. Um, so it remains to be seen. Um, the affiliates aren't that organized as a community, although Rebecca Madigan and, and the PMA have done tremendous work in getting them organized. But I think you know now that this issue has happened, I think you're going to see people getting more involved um, and. Possibility of taking some action in some form, whether it's um, <clears throat> legislatively, legal, or using the marketplace. So that's um, that's that's possible ways where this may develop, and so we'll just have to keep watching. Um, I would expect a lawsuit to be filed shortly, and um, when it does, we'll report on it and give you an update. Um, another development that has happened. In the last week, I must say, is the everyone has been commenting on the verdict last week, um, yesterday, excuse me, in the Casey Anthony trial, and um, and one in particular was um, Nancy Grace, who spoke with you know moral clarity and um, you know, total assuredness that she was the voice of reason, that she had the truth, and that somehow the jury had messed it up, and that she knew better than everyone else. And she was appalled and said the devil was dancing tonight because of the verdict. Well, a little thing about Nancy Grace was that she was a prosecutor in the state of Georgia before becoming a journalist. And she, on several occasions, was sanctioned by courts for um, prosecutorial misconduct. In one case, the Georgia Supreme Court cited her disregard of the notions of due process and fairness in overturning one conviction. And over the years, Nancy Grace has definitely been an entertaining um, personality on CNN, but too often she often uses her position as a way to try people by the media and more often convict them before any, any process has occurred. In this case, while whatever happened to this child is, is horrific and tragic, um, the jury had the duty to respond and come up with a decision beyond a reasonable doubt. And the prosecution did not give them any information as to the cause of death. They could not tell them the time of death. And so given the the information they had, um, Casey Anthony was tried by a jury of her peers, and her peers determined that the state had not met their burden. Now, we all may have a hunch that Casey Anthony did it, but if all of us could be convicted based on someone's hunch, a lot of us would be in jail who shouldn't be. And that's not the kind of country we want to live in. And I think for Nancy Grace to go nuclear and ballistic over this, the day, at, the day after the 4th of July, in which we celebrate you know, our country's independence and, and our heritage and, and our country, which is founded not based on any national identity, but by a document called the Constitution. And while Nancy Grace plays platitudes in terms of saying she respects it, um, her deeds often don't reflect that. And so, I think her tirade um, was was not constructive, and I think it doesn't help viewers to look at how the judicial system works. The way the judicial system has you have deal with the evidence presented, Um, somehow Nancy Grace seems to have um, omniscience as to what happened. But she was not in the jury room. She did not see the evidence presented, and there certainly were flaws in the prosecution's case. I think you know they made the decision, the best decision they could. Now, do juries always get it right? No. And do sometimes um, people who should be convicted walk free? Yes. But to have a, a, a situation or to allow jurors to just convict people on hunches or based on what has been said in the tabloids, it is a horrific thought and something we would not want, not a country that we would want to live in. So to Nancy Grace, I say, shame on you. You should know better. Um, to Casey Anthony, I have nothing really to say. Um, just to her family, I just um, deepest sympathies for everything they've been through in terms of the loss of their um, granddaughter and child. So, but everyone's been talking about it, so I thought I'd add my two cents. Finally, um, a couple of birthdays today. Nancy Reagan is 90 years old. And my good friend George W. Bush is having a birthday today, so I'm sure he's having a a nice birthday cake somewhere on his ranch in Walker, although I know he's left that and moved to Dallas since then. But um, thank you for joining us here on Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, Hope you'll join us next week when we talk about further developments going on in the state of Internet law. And as always, we look forward to your questions on the chat room. Um, You can definitely stay in touch with us by, um, you can catch new episodes of Cyber Law and Business Report every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1% Eastern. You can listen and download our past episodes at webmasterradio.fm or look us up on iTunes where you can download us for free. Keep up with the latest issues by subscribing to our Internet Law Center's Cyber Report, um, which as I mentioned recently won an award from the LA Press Club. And you can sign up for free at internetlawcenter.net and make sure to follow us on Twitter at CyberLore Radio. I'm Bennett Kelly and we are adjourned. See you next week.